right, is all about that, is how do you go out and talk to customers to test those hypotheses? Yeah. And it's not about asking someone if they want your product or service, but rather it's developing that depth of understanding that it underpins and is implicit in your idea. So you believe it solves a certain problem. Who has that problem? Your customer is hiring you to do a job, right? They're hiring your product rather right. to do a job. You need to understand that job if you want to get hired. So what is the job to be done uh -huh. that your customer needs? Welcome to Passion Play Profit. I'm your host, Peter Liu, and I'll be interviewing both young and grizzled entrepreneurs to teach you how to find your passion, play, enjoy, persevere in the game of business, and get rewarded for it. I'm privileged and honored today to be joined by the Managing Director of NYU's Entrepreneurship Initiative and the NYU Innovation Venture Fund, which is a seed stage venture fund formed to invest in startups founded by NYU students, faculty, and researchers. He has more than 20 years of experience in early stage venture capital and technology commercialization. And previously, he's held positions in marketing and product management in Apple. He was also an M&A banker at Bear Stearns and Robin and Renshaw. This is a man who has truly dedicated his life to entrepreneurship and making ventures blossom. Frank Rimalovsky, welcome to the show. And let's talk about how you've turned your passion to play to profit. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Peter. It's a, it's a terrific intro and I'm, I'm honored to be here. The honor is all mine. So let's jump into the questions, right? I, you know, ever since I was in middle school, um, you know, my first taste of entrepreneurship was when I started realizing that like, you know, kids in my class really enjoyed a certain type of candy and they went to a, the same deli every day after school to, you know, get this type of candy. It was, um, it was a Starburst type, right? But what I realized is that like, every single every piece at that deli was expired and it just didn't work out so what i did was i went to costco i bought like i think around five packs of like 200 pieces i just went around school hand and uh selling them to kids and i think the most impactful moment was when i walked into the boys bathroom and i saw the exact same wrappers just strewn all across the floor I, and at that moment i knew you know the entrepreneurship and the form of selling. And I didn't even know that was entrepreneurship at that time. It was just the form of selling and sales was something that I could live with, was something that I really enjoyed. So um, Frank, I want to ask, like, when's the first time that you felt that, you know, you were an entrepreneur or you felt that entrepreneurship could be something I could kind of dedicate my life to or have a passion for? Um, and, you know, why, right? Why did you feel that way? So, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I ever really had that epiphany, to be honest with you. Um, and I really think of myself someone as more who helps and supports entrepreneurs, though I have had uh, my own entrepreneurial endeavors. But you know, the, the short version of it is, is I got really excited back when I was in graduate school, when I started to uh, study and research the history of Silicon Valley and the notion of inventing and directing the future, just that idea got me so excited and uh you know using technology to not to make it sound so noble but you know how can we make the world a better place in, in 
in some way, shape or form just really resonated with me. And I think that was at least the idealized ethos of Silicon Valley at the time. And so I just uh, made it my mission to find my way out there after graduate school. And uh, that's how I ended up first at Next, which was the company that Steve Jobs had formed after he left Apple and then subsequently at Apple and then Sun Microsystems. And uh, had I not had kids, I'd probably still be living out there working um, in that. But it was through that experience that I kind of stumbled into venture capital in a corporate context uh, where I was able to use my product management uh, skills that I had refined in Silicon Valley um, to work with researchers and technologists to help them start startups. And so my first foray into it was kind of like an entrepreneur in residence of sorts. I see. um, uh, Wearing that hat and the hat of the venture of the early stage venture capitalist that got me into it. Got it. um, Yeah. So that's how. Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, farther along in the career that you stumble upon these opportunities and then you start to realize like, oh shit, you know, um, this might be a little bit more interesting than what I had before. So um, the question I want to ask you is like, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a freshman, right? I'm a teen. Um, impressions are, you know, can, can go really, really deep for, you know, a student at my age. So, you know, take me back to 1983, 1987, you were in Tufts, right? Um, but, you know, you, you started off in a career in finance and, you know, there's typically a lot of pressure, uh, you know, for te- teens to, you know, create, find a stable job, um, find something with prestige, a little bit, you know, good salary and finance is just that. So, you know, what led you to go down the finance path first and, uh, you know, what were the pull and push factors for that field? Yeah, I think that that was another happy accident in a way. Cause I entered yeah. Tufts probably like a lot of your classmates as pre-med um, right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, for better, or for worse, you know, freshman chemistry just kicked my ass and uh, I wasn't enjoying it and I wasn't doing well. And I decided that this wasn't for me. And actually I was talking, I remember I was in Lewis Hall talking to uh, an upperclassman who lived in a single across the hall from me and, you know, kind of scratching my head saying, what am I going to do now? I know I really had never thought about anything other than being a doctor at that point in time. And he was an economics major and said, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he kind of encouraged me to try macroeconomics as a, as a class in, I guess, would have been sp- uh, fall of, of sophomore year. Yeah. And I took it with uh, Professor Dapis. I don't know if he's still there. And uh, I absolutely loved it. It made sense to me in a way that I really never felt with chemistry. And it clicked and I had to work at it. I don't want to say it was easy, but it just, just something clicked. And, and I think also then being able to pick up the newspaper and see that, you know, the federal reserve was talking about adjusting interest rates in response to what's going on in the economy at the time. That was like, wait, I learned that in class. I understand what they're talking about. That makes sense to me. I think reinforced it. And that's, I think what ultimately led to attract me to wall street back uh, in the, in that era. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't even when I started economics, it wasn't even that I had set out to mm-hmm. pursue that. Uh, actually, I learned about uh, investment banking from friends at other schools, actually, yeah. to be honest with you. And uh, so I pursued that with, with reckless abandon until I, I found my way. Yeah. I mean, like, 
well, first and foremost, um, I know there's, well, it seems like times hasn't really changed because I know like one of my best friends at Tufts right now came in as chem and is now like infatuated with econ. So exactly what you just said, same person, different age, still happening. So, you know, <laughs> like you're like this, this trend will never stop. Uh, econ does attract um, certain types of people. And I think for you specifically, it seems like it was perhaps more of the practical application of what you learned in an academic setting that, you know, made you fall in love. And um, for me specifically, you know, that's, that's, you know, one of my core philosophies is like, you know, like I, I want to learn something that's practical and this podcast is meant to, you know, be as practical as possible. Right. Um, but, you know, certain things I think just can't be learned in the classroom. Um, you know, for, for, for instance, maybe you can debate me on this, but, you know, for entrepreneurship, I feel like it's best to be learned on the field, on the fly, through the mistakes, through learning. Um, and that's the way that lessons actually stick because, you know, a lot of the things that you say or we say is, you know, very simple. It makes sense, right? It's common sense for entrepreneurs. But um, I think the learning is coming from how deep those lessons can get ingrained into your philosophies, right? And how deeply you actually follow them and perceive them as principles rather than just concepts and ideas. So, um, you know, to what degree do you think um, entrepreneurship should fit within the school setting, right? Like to what degree should it be um, an academic and what could be learned in the classroom versus, you know, should be kept um, outside the classroom and just for, uh, you know, actually learning by doing? So that's a, a great question. Something that I spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time thinking about. And in fact, what I've designed at NYU kind of mirrors my philosophy on this, which is as follows, is that, and it's really a hybrid of what you described because we don't actually teach entrepreneurship classes. Nothing I do is for credit, but we do a lot of teaching, but everything is in a very applied context. Got it. So we use people's ideas or inventions as the vehicle to teach them the skills that they need really on a just-in-time basis, right? So I don't do case studies to, on how to go from an idea to an IPO because yeah. anything more than two weeks out is information that you don't really need right now. Exactly. Not to say that there's not benefits from learning that, but, you know, uh, a colleague of mine has an expression that I like is, you know, what's the nearest alligator to the boat? Yeah. What is it that you, you really yeah. need to worry about um, in the near term? And so, you know, we start with, you know, everybody who comes in uh, to us starts with an idea or an invention, and then we help them think through how do we translate that into a business? Mm -hmm. And we teach them the tools to do that as they go, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so that starts with who is your initial target customer? What's the value that you're going right. to create from them? Because that's the foundation exactly. or the platform or whatever yeah. metaphor you like for any business, whether you're a for profit, not for profit, social impact, tech, mom and pop, or scalable, doesn't matter. Right. No, 100%. And, um, you know, that's why, like, I look at some of the classes at Tufts, right? Uh, where, you know, there's a, there's a marketing course, there's a marketing strategy, there's like business law, stuff like that. Some things, you know, are, are ingrained, there's a set of rules like business law, whereas like, you know, some things perhaps could be a little bit more abstract, like marketing, right? There's no clear path to how to market, but more so just principles to learn. Um, so I kind of want to retrace back a little bit, talk about what you did after finance, right? So, you know, after finance, um, I believe in the middle of, in the middle of that, you did your MBA. And then afterwards, right. um, 
you, you know, you, you got recruited for next and then uh, went into Apple. So yeah. um, in, 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 in that phase right there, right? Like, how did you know at that time, like transitioning to marketing was right for you? And how did you know that was the right timing for you? So um, when I was going back to graduate school, the primary thing I knew was that I didn't want to stay in finance anymore. <laughs> okay. um, I had kind of a love-hate relationship with it. I loved working with really smart, ambitious people. I loved working on challenging and interesting problems. I didn't really love the ethos. And frankly, I was a little burnt out after four years of working 80 to 90 hour weeks. Yeah. Um, so I went back to business school uh, really to, to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I very quickly came to the conclusion, knowing I didn't want to go back to finance, didn't consulting really didn't attract me because I just yeah. felt like similar uh, animal under, under a different name. And most of the, you know, kind of fortune 100 kind of companies that were coming to recruit just were a big yawn for me. Um, and Sometime in that first semester of business school, I was reading a book called West of Eden, which was about the founding of Silicon Valley and then Apple. And it kind of painted this history. And this is where I kind of got that, as what I was talking about earlier, that notion of inventing the future that just, and I wasn't going to be an engineer, but to, to work in that. And then, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how can I help? And then I didn't just want to be a number cruncher or bean counter. I wanted to actually be at the table. And I learned about, you know, the roles of marketing and product management. And that got me really excited to kind of bring the voice of the customer, which is frankly something I was studying in business school, yeah. to the table to work with the engineers to divine the future. Yeah. And um, that's when I, I knew that I wanted to, to work in, in technology and so actually, I wasn't recruited by Next. I kind of forced myself upon them um, and pursued that with reckless abandon along with a bunch of other companies and chose them because I thought that I would, they were the smallest of all the, the job offers, uh, the summer internship. I, I didn't offer at Apple. I didn't offer at a company that I think is now defunct called Software Publishing, but that was a big company at the time. And Next, which was a couple hundred people at the time. So I thought that would give me the best lens on the way that the industry and the company worked, right? And Apple was a relatively big company at that point in time. And I knew I just would have seen a very narrow sliver I see. of how they operated. And um, so I chose next. I loved it. We lived in San Francisco that summer. I reverse commuted awesome. down towards Redwood City every day and had the best time, worked my ass off, learned a ton and really enjoyed it and um, was hooked after that. And then upon graduation, uh, got an offer from Apple to join them full time awesome. in their, funny enough, in their higher education yeah. marketing group, um, which was the, the door that was open and I stepped yeah. through it. And I loved Apple. I loved the job. I uh, loved the people I work with and uh, was there for uh, just under four years. And was able to grow in the organization and take on new and different responsibilities to the end of my time there really had kind of gotten my dream, my dream job of, you know, being a product manager for the next version of the operating system at the time. Yeah. So that, and that was really That's uh, awesome. exciting. And yeah, I mean, definitely some, some, it felt like that transition definitely uh, suited you and it went smoothly. Whereas you really 
found what it is and you know it kind of it flowed really logically into the next role which was perfect and um, one thing that i'm noticing is like you know for at each of these firms you were you were in a position of you know as a leader right as a manager as someone who you know had the initiative and were passing down a vision to others so um you know to a certain extent um and, and this is this speaks for all of your career not just those two uh you know roles itself but i want to learn um you know perhaps what is the biggest lesson that you had to learn the hard way um as a leaner as a leader hmm. That's a great question. Um, it's definitely not an easy question. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say so much the hard way, but I'd say the most important, can I answer maybe a slightly different one? The most yeah, sure. important lesson um, is something that actually has subsequently become almost a cliche, but you know, there's a, a guy named um, Simon Sinek who mm -hmm. wrote a book called Start With Why. Right, yeah. And I think, I don't think I could have written the book and I, I want to give him credit where credit is due, but I think I seemed to, I intuitively understood that. And when, you know, particularly when at Apple, when I started to have to interface with the engineering team, even though I had the authority and responsibility to make decisions, right? I still wanted buy-in of the engineering team whose responsibility yeah. and the quality assurance team and, and the program management team, et cetera, to actually, uh, who I needed to implement that and explaining to them how I came to those decisions right. and conclusions. Um, uh, you know, so the authority and power is, is one thing, but you still need to leverage that by getting yeah. people on, on board. Right. And um, so, you know, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier about, you know, bringing that voice of the customer into everything that I did was I tried to make that, you know, I mean, I spent months, you know, researching, I actually would go down to Austin where Apple's customer support operations were yeah. and sit in and listen on calls and listen to the struggles and the pains that customers were, were calling in for, right? Usually they don't call customer support to tell them how much they love it. They're yeah. talking about the difficulties right. they're having <laughs> and, you know, and then analyze the data and, and, and was able to kind of present a cohesive argument why this is the direction we should go in. Mm -hmm. um, so explaining the why behind decisions as a leader is, yeah. is as if not more important sometimes than what the decision exactly. is. 100%. And just to reiterate that last point you also made, not only is it, you know, for a leader, but, you know, iterating that why for, you know, when you're pitching your company, um, when you're talking to a customer, that same, you know, thing applies. And perhaps that is, um, as you know, the most important thing, right? Like why? And uh, more so, does this actually comprehensively and truly solve a problem that exists? Um, so, um, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, of all, you have 20 years of experience in VCs, um, encountering founders, you know, students, and also, uh, you know, like, you know, not only just student founders, but also, you know, well-established founders of companies. Um, so I guess the question would be um, more so along the lines of like, you know, that if that is the biggest mistake, right, which is like, you know, or I, I kind of want to turn this question upside down, which is like, if that's the biggest mistake, right, like, which is um, perhaps not understanding or, or, or trying to create a market that serves your product instead of properly finding a product that serves your market, right? Um, what is the most practical way to actually perhaps survey the market 
um, and find a market that you feel passionate about so that you can consistently serve it. Um, and where does those ideas start from? Like, does an idea to serve a market come from the creation of that market or the seeing of that niche market itself? Or is it more so, you know, maybe a product that you want that could potentially fit the market? I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't have a specific philosophy about where good ideas can come from. So I think they, and I've seen they can come from anywhere. They can come from personal experience. They can come from research. Um, and I don't buy that there's one way to come up with ideas. Yeah. That said, when it comes to how do you turn an idea into a business, I think right. that's something different. And that goes back to what we were just talking about, right, about anchoring it in a customer. So having an idea, right, is, is a shorthanded way of saying you have a series of untested hypotheses right? You yeah. believe that you have a product that is going to be useful for someone in order to solve problem X, Y, or Z, right? You may not have thought of it that explicitly, but implicitly mm -hmm. that that is probably at the basis of any idea. Right. So what my advice is and what we teach at NYU and what actually I helped write a book about called Talking to Humans with my friend yeah. Gift Constable Mm -hmm. right, is all about that, is how do you go out and talk to customers to test those hypotheses? Yeah. And it's not about asking someone if they want your product or service, but rather it's developing that depth of understanding that it underpins and is implicit in your idea. So you believe it solves a certain problem. Who has that problem? Who has it most acutely? Who's actively trying to solve it? Why are they dissatisfied with existing solutions? How do they learn about new solutions? What have they tried that they've liked? What have they tried that they didn't like? Why didn't they like that? And getting and unpacking all of that will help you adapt your idea. And it may change substantially. It may change subtly, mm -hmm. right? Everyone's mileage is going to vary. Yeah. Um, but that's how, and I mean, it was interesting the way you said that, whether it's matching your product to the market or your market to the product, yeah. right? It's, this is an evolutionary way to do it. Evolutionary though, can be done in weeks or months. It doesn't, evolutionary doesn't necessarily mean, mean years. Yeah. Right? It just means cycles and iterations. Right. And that, that, that's where the term pivots comes from, exactly. right? The pivots are those adaptations in mm -hmm. your hypotheses as you're going out with customers and learning yeah. and testing and iterating. Precisely. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's the, um, at the end of the day, when you're an entrepreneur, you, you know, when you buy my product, you're now hiring me and I serve you. Yeah, basically, that's the best way to put it. Um, and, you know, that's, that's why I'm even building the company in the first place. Right. So, yeah. I, I, that, in that's fact, really you know, one of the, the phrases that we like to use is uh, popularized by uh, Clayton Christensen from, uh, from Harvard Business School was that your customer is hiring you to do a job right? They're hiring your product rather right. to do a job. You need to understand that job if you want to get hired. Exactly. Exactly. So what is the job to be done uh -huh. that your customer needs? Precisely. Yeah. And then just fit, fulfilling that need and just executing. Um, and then once you, once you find the customer, then there's like a whole series of steps where, you know, how do I segment that? How do I find them, target them, filter them, and actually, you know, approach them the right way, create the right environment for that, um, whatever you want to create. So um, now that we focused a little bit about, you know, 
specifically something that a lot of founders have done wrong, right? Have kind of had a misconception about. Um, I want to ask perhaps what is something that founders are doing right, really, really right, but they don't realize that they're doing right. And what can they do to perhaps like increase that rightness? So, I mean, I think the, the good news is, is that, you know, there, there's been a democratization or of the understanding of how startups work over the last 15 to 20 years. You know, yeah. before that, you were seeing people writing, you know, 20 and 40 page business plans and then asking for money and hoping that someone would give it to them. And then the intention was to do what it said in the document. But you know that uh, was an is uh, writing a business plan is an exercise in creative writing, right? Um, right. You're trying to predict the future with certainty and exactly. in great detail. Um, so the notion of experimentation and uh, and making small steps and small learnings and small failures throughout those learnings, I think, is. Uh, the thing that I've seen entrepreneurs do really well. The, the, the common mistake that I see people making goes back to something we were just talking about, which is that they, they want to start with the product. But I actually, because the, the, the problem with that is that, you know, even creating, you know, some semblance of an MVP, alpha, beta, prototype, whatever you want to call it, still requires you know, not an insignificant amount of effort, assume even if you have the skills and capacity to do that. But it is an order of magnitude more effort than talking to someone. And so the, the problem with starting with the product and testing that is twofold. Is one is that it requires a lot of effort and you may exhaust a material amount of your time or resources or the patience of your partners and collaborators in that process if you get it wrong and have to go back to the drawing board yeah right so that's that's problem number one problem number two is if you even if you get it right you don't always understand why right yeah. all you know is that people are buying your product you don't necessarily right. know why exactly. uh, from that so all the more reason to start with understanding the customer through conversation, right? Which is actually takes less time and effort than actually building the product yeah. and is, in, is inherently lower, lower risk and right. easier, easier to employ. And, you know, by the way, if you're not technical, you don't need a CTO to do that, right? Exactly. You don't need an engineer to do that. Um, and in fact, I would argue it would, if you are trying to recruit someone well, you'll be in even in a better position to do that once you have evidence that you've identified a pressing need and a gap in the market and have a validated concept on how to solve it, even if you haven't built it yet. Yeah, exactly. No, 100%. And like, not only that, I think um, a lot of people, when they have an idea, they refrain from, you know, letting others know about it because they think it's like something that's golden that they should keep precious and that they should build it themselves. And take advantage of it but that's the worst thing that you can possibly do because your friends everyone around you are the people that can vet it and make sure that it actually works so you know when you have an idea let the world know um because odds are somebody's already found that and came up with that idea right and there's a probably a chance well, that's, that all, that's always his but you know but yeah. the, the truth is even before you i, I agree with that you shouldn't yeah. keep yourself you do want to put it out there but I would test the problem before you even mm -hmm. test the solution. So you don't even have to actually disclose what your exactly. idea is. Exactly. Uh, but there's a, there's a great quote 
I would forget the fellow's name, but he was a leader of the uh, really the first mainframe computer uh, project at IBM back even before I was born. And he said, don't worry about people stealing your ideas. If it's right. worth anything, you'll have to force it down their throat, uh, which <laughs> yeah. at some level is is true of any truly radical innovation. Right. It's right. those things have a long path to adoption. Yeah. Um, and uh yeah, so don't worry, don't worry about people stealing. <laughs> exactly, and you know the, and I, I want to return to a point you made earlier. Like, the engineers are gonna like building it more that more when they know that they like there's somebody that actually needs it rather than yeah, exactly. Like, like that's exactly. actually well gonna be like motivation that's gonna create residual dividends, you know, over time to be consistent progress. So, um, you know, I hundred percent agree with you. So, um, you know, my 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 final question, and I. Like, I love this question. It's like, you know, um, the reason, you know, a kid can enjoy the shade today, uh, like me, a kid like me, is because a man uh, planted a seed 10 years ago, right, um, to create that tree. So what is the tree that you want to, you know, plant today or grow today so that, you know, generations into the future, um, you know, a kid will remember who planted that tree? Well, at the risk of being a broken record, it's uh, I'd like to hope that the the legacy of of understanding that your business is ultimately about satisfying your customer and it starts there is the most important thing that I've been imbuing upon the students and entrepreneurs yeah. that I've had the pleasure of working with and that they come back years later and tell me uh, was the most important thing that they learned. Uh, early on in their journey and they're thankful for that and it is a skill that they still use so every time they have a new idea yeah. a new thought a new feature a new marketing campaign a new pricing strategy right go out and test it by talking to your customers right should be your your go-to um so i i'd like to believe that you know helping spread that gospel has been the the tree that i i planted Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Frank, for your time today. You have imparted upon me more wisdom than you can imagine. And I can say with confidence that is the same with whoever is listening right now. So without a doubt, you're a legend, Frank. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Peter. Thank you for doing this and uh, helping share these stories with uh, other aspiring entrepreneurs. Let's go.